0: Three, two, two, one. one. Dr. CB, how you doing? Dunny, what's happening, amigo? Good to see you. Good, good, <laughs> good to see me? Yeah. Yeah, with my ears. It's good to see you with my ears. I guess that's the similar thing to uh, that's hearing you. Good yeah, to hear I, think, you. I think a lot of
1: people use the word hear, so good to hear me. Yeah?
0: Yeah, good, good to hear you because I don't actually see you right now. We're not in the same location.
1: No, we're not. I think I think that can be evidenced by your audio. Where are you at? Ah, uh, man, I'm in East Flagstaff. I'm
0: uh, out back in the backyard of my mikasa, enjoying the spring weather. Got a little overcast going. Beautiful. Yeah. Why are you there? Ah, uh, man, I'm covid be nice. This week I got the COVID. <laughs> man, I got my first... My first... Positive
1: COVID test, man. covid B chinchilla, nice,
0: nice. Yeah, covid B chinchilla, nice. Oh, man, I've been tricking those tests for a long time. I probably had COVID what, like eight nine times.
1: Yeah, it's gonna say. Yeah. You you got a positive <laughs> after several failed attempts because there's been several times where it seems predominantly likely that you uh,
0: yeah for sure had COVID. February 2020 for sure. Uh, May 2021, <laughs> May 2022, and now May 2023 is the first documented instance of COVID. <laughs> and and there's probably another
1: handful somewhere in between there, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure of it. All right, there's a handful, <laughs> I recall, where it's like two weeks out for the count. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah man. We and
0: COVID, dude, we got a
1: relationship, I'll tell you that. Yeah, so how are you doing with the recovery? Just chilling out back.
0: Just chilling out back. Yeah, man, it's nice. It's beautiful out here. I'm actually feeling really well today. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, we're good, man. Tuesday. What is this? This is a weekday. This is Friday. So on Tuesday, I was uh, I was out for the count, man. Run that high fever, in and out of sleep all day, and uh, just progressively better each day. And today feeling... I'm feeling ready to rock, man. I'm ready to party. Oh, that's good. I'm man. out here with the dogs. Ah, the dogs are out there. Jojo and Poppy. JoJo and Poppy, man. So it's not total social isol- isolation, you yeah.
1: know? Yeah, how are That's JoJo... What are
0: there? canines there? Uh, what is JoJo doing? She's just laying on the ground right now. Yeah. I don't know where Poppy is. She's, I don't know. Eating <laughs> ding-dong somewhere. Oh, she's <laughs> eating the weed. Never mind. Yeah, She's eating the weed over there. <laughs> there she is. So oh, hey, man.
1: JoJo Doodles, and Poppy. Man. Jo- <laughs> yeah. Eating the Eating the weed. Poppy, she's a she's a sharp tack. She's a you she uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> she's a <an> dull tack. <laughs> yeah, how many times approximately how many times have Jojo and Poppy been skunked in that backyard uh this year? Um just overall. Yeah, Poppy's let's just been, do a total. Let's do a grand total. So, so Poppy's only a year.
0: Uh <laughs> She's been skunked twice. Those those have all just been in the last month. They were actually like within two nights of each other. And then uh, JoJo's jo- been skunked once this season and then twice last year. So five?
1: <laughs> Skunks
0: five? Yeah, man. The funny thing with Poppy right now is like, you know, she's a tricolor Bernice Mountain Dog doodle. And so her is black right but we after she got skunked we used hydrogen peroxide baking soda and fish soap Yeah. so her fur is almost this white it looks like she like put that sun in you know when you're in yeah. middle school and yeah. you put sun in, in your yeah. hair Yeah. like it's like patchy sun in all over her hair <laughs> she looks kind of ridiculous the look, so that's what you get
1: the look playing matches stinky kitties. Kind, yeah. kind of matches <laughs> kind of matches
0: <laughs> playing with those stinky kitties Oh man! Mess around, to find out. Yeah, you know, she's just laying on her back in the dirt. That's a good dog. <laughs> I'll take a, I'll take a picture of this moment so that we can so that we can <laughs> so we can put this on the gram and reference it.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking a minute out of your busy day uh, to record this intro. We're really under the gun to get this episode out. We recorded it in February. February 6th to be exact Uh, so here it is mid-May
0: yeah I know our producers have really been driving driving us trying to get this episode out yeah
1: and so I'm proud of us and being able to do this so efficiently yeah they set a hard boundary with four months so yeah I'd say we did that right
0: (laughs) February March April May boom
1: how many times (laughs) how many times producers four four months so, uh, yeah, who, who do we got on the docket today? Oh, one, one important thing to note is that uh, when we recorded this, the individual that we interview uh, is an expert in the Glen Canyon area, and we talk a little bit about all the massive snowpack that was going on. And so now a few months later, the cool thing is we get to see in real time kind of the things that we were speculating about way back in February in terms of the snowpack's influence on the river yeah
0: yeah what are we what are some of the things we're seeing oh uh yeah
1: i mean uh lake Powell's rising one foot a day yeah i was checking uh i was checking the cfs levels and the height of uh, a flow station on the green river and it's already like four feet above its peak from last year and it's it usually peaks around mid June. So another month to go before it peaks and sorry, four wow. feet above its highest point last year. And the flow wow. is like 20,000. It's gotten up to 20,000 CFS. And the high point last year was I think 13,000. And, wow. uh, and yeah, it'll be another month before yep. it probably reaches its peak. So it's been uh, flowing. It's been flowing. That was uh, an exceptional winner. It was a wild winter for sure it was and the the melt has been good. I think in Colorado and Utah in that it kind of warms up and then cools down. so it's actually been fairly good. There's still a lot of melt they expect from the high peaks and mm-hmm. so um, yeah, it's limited flooding flooding is occurring, but limited it. And so a couple of important things to note is it would take several years like that to actually get out of the drought. and so, Last winter was such an aberration that likely, statistically speaking, the winters will again return to what they have been. So it's important to note that there'll be um, a lot of contribution this year from all that snowpack into the rivers, but, uh, yeah, it won't solve the overall ongoing issue of overuse. Right, right. Yeah, it's a really important thing to note. Yeah. So, who do we got on the docket?
0: Yo, we're going Stouse in the house. In this episode, we go beyond flag with Jack Stouse. Grew up in rural Vermont. He moved to Utah in 2008 and fell in love with its open space and community. His passion for the Red Rock and Glen Canyon comes from years of higher education and experiential learning. Recently, he finished his graduate work at the University of Utah. Hashtag go... Utah. Utah, yeah, let's go. In Environmental Humanities, where he focused on public lands and environmental communication. Jack has previously interned with Save Our Canyons and the Salzburg Global Seminar, and he has worked for Glen Canyon Institute since 2016.
1: All right. Yeah, in this episode, Jack shares the history of Glen Canyon, how he became connected with the Institute, what recommendations the Institute has for the current situation, and a variety of experiences he's had while exploring and developing a relationship with the canyon. So, thanks for joining us as we go Beyond Flag with
0: Jack.
2: Out. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production created by, with, and for the people of Flagstaff, building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips and Cody Bayliss, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice-Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go beyond flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory.
1: All right, well, welcome, Jack. We appreciate you joining us today. Could you jump in with telling us a little bit about uh, the Glen Canyon Institute and what you do there?
3: Sure. So the Glen Canyon Institute was founded in uh, 1996 by our current president, Richard Ingebrigtsen, and the kind of premise of the whole org um, has maintained our mission through the years is a restored Colorado River through, uh, sorry, a, a restored Colorado River through Glen Canyon, um, storing the canyon to a more natural state and letting the Colorado River run uh, freely through both Glen and Grand Canyon. And over the years, that that mission has been accomplished through a variety of different uh, mediums but in recent years we commissioned research working with different organizations across the west like universities and other nonprofits um, and research tanks to look at different things that are happening in the rivers with uh, both like the water storage conservation and uh, legal analysis of the river to, to kind of prove that it's uh, you know possible to do that and then in recent years as the water has started to drop we've worked with sedimentologists and ecologists, as well as uh, groups of different citizen scientists and recreationists to showcase what's already happening on the ground. So basically, depending on what era of Glen Canyon we're talking about, we've worked on different projects with a variety of stakeholders and partners to showcase um, different components that people are curious about. So like why the reservoirs exist, where the water, you know, what allocations need to be um, held in each reservoir. And how, you know, we kind of see the reality of these places as the landscape and the river itself having more value than some of these other entities that for a long time have been the you know reason we have big reservoirs in the desert. Um, and then, yeah, more recently, since basically the year 2000, the millennium drought has kind of given us a, an opportunity to showcase the reality of what's happening down there and to get out both um, for the sake of just exploring and showing the public what's going on, um, as well as doing some real research to show what's happening with a variety of different processes like i kind of was saying like sediment removal ecological ecological succession you know riparian corridors inside canyons going back to life yeah depending on where in the history of the of the organization we're talking about yeah lots of different opportunities for yeah different stories i guess that have come out of the reservoir
2: for sure it seems it seems like right now jack there's a lot going on around the colorado and glen canyon and i wonder as outreach director um,
3: what does that look like for you on a day-to-day basis right now? Since probably 2018, I've been in an outreach role, so traveling around the West, telling stories about the river, showing films and slideshows uh, regarding different stories and research that we've um, done. So sharing with public what's happening down there. That has really grown rapidly since probably spring 2021, um, in this kind of current uh, period of low water in. Uh, the reservoir and a lot of public interest surrounding it. So I've just kind of been doing more of what I already was. So in the office here, we do a lot of just upkeep and keeping tabs on what's happening in the, in the press, working with collaborators, scheduling out, you know, months in advance research, media, and public trips down to the region. And then spring, summer, and fall, we go on those trips. I think last year, my director and I did, 30 trips to the region um, between March and October. And those can range from member river trips to ecological succession surveys to eight day long sediment and water quality trips to just going out with a bunch of a few you know interested stakeholders or our board members and exploring regions that we know have come out of water recently. So Gregory Natural Bridge, for example, we knew came out last spring, so going down to an area that we travel to a lot, but has had recent, um, geological sites of interest come back from high water. So those are really cool. Um, of course it's a lot of work going down there. It's a really remote place. Um, a lot of the stuff that's happening on the reservoir, no one else is really looking at in the way we are. So I kind of, I call it like I call the area from where we parked the boat up to probably like elevation 3670, which has been out of water for a while. I call it the moon zone because it's just such a new environment that no one else is really studying or exploring. Um, It's really cool. It's really interesting. The changes are rapid and dynamic. Um, And then I come back to the office after a trip and we'll, you know, write a blog or share photographs, keep our members updated on the changes we're discovering down there.
1: Yeah, it sounds super interesting. You know, listening to you, it's clear that uh, the Glen Canyon Institute has a lot of stakeholders and community network partners, um, including scientists, artists, researchers, legal experts, things like that. But there's also a board and a staff. Is that right? So what functions do the board and staff have? And then if you'd be willing to share examples of one or two uh, network partners um, that you partner with.
3: Totally. Yeah. So our board is really strong. We have a great a great group of um, environmental advocates, lawyers, historians, you know, stakeholders from the region. Um, we have kind of more advisors that have either been on or off the board that help us sort of steer the shift towards the next steps for GCI over the years. Our staff is just three of us here. Um, We do have, uh, it kind of dovetails into the question about the other partners we work with. Since the fall of 2020, we've been working with a crew out of Moab called the Returning Rapids Project. A group of different professionals, one of the main principal investigators owns a, a boat welding shop. He does aluminum welding and makes boat components and uh, has been a river guide for a long time. Uh, so that, his name is Mike DeHoff. The second guy is um, Pete Lefebvre, and he's a river guide out of Moab as well. Um, Meg Flynn is a histor- uh, a librarian and has helped with archival, historical um, information gav- gathering. Um, and then we have a couple other, they have a couple other people on their team that do flyover phot- photography. So Returning Rapids Project has become a, a project of Glen Canyon Institute. So they're sort of they're sort of contractors slash... Uh, employees of ours now but basically they kind of have uh, autonomy and do work mostly in the cataract and upper Glen Glen Canyon region looking at what's kind of turned into mostly sediment movement and how the river corridor is changing and either um, restoring or creating new rapids for the sake of you know uh, rafting down there which is really cool we get to go on a lot of trips with those guys and scientists that we both have worked with over the years to help look at what is facilitating those processes mostly geologists Um, folks from the U of U or USGS um, come on those trips, and also our other Glen Canyon downstream trips. Um, So we have, Return Rapids Project is one of the main focuses, and then uh, we have a a scientist named Seth Irons who we basically commissioned to do a multi-year long Plant survey down in the canyon. So we've looked at 15 canyons so far. Uh, we've already got a bunch of research coming out about cataracts We spent three years surveying, restoring sites or re- rehabilitating sites, both um, in the restoration zone as well as above high water, so we can compare um, what's happening in a more natural habitat to what's happening, you know, where the reservoir once was. So we'll work with him over the next three years, uh, building upon the research we did last summer to continue to look at those regions. There's a couple other, you know, smaller projects in the works with, like you guys were talking about, uh, artists, gifts and humanities-based projects that we'll be supporting this year, which I'm always excited about. Because it's kind of more my background. But I really think the science and the, the work down there with people from the academic community is really important to be help inform our uh, baseline of understanding what processes are really changing the river corridors and the riparian habitats and side canyons. So I like the mix of both having, you know, historians and musicians and poets go down, but also being able to work with scientists. Um, It's really an interesting mix. But yeah, those are kind of the two big science projects we have going on. Um, And they, you know, they kind of change every time we go down. So there's always something that somebody on the trip is like, oh, we got to come back next year and look at this, like the Delta movement, or we got to come back next year and look at this specific canyon and do, you know, extrapolate the research we did upstream down to this one. Um, Or we got to look at this next river uh the next delta you know we got to go we take what we know now in cataract and move it down to the san juan arm so it's always it's always something new and it's really it's really fun to watch these scientists get really excited about stuff um and similarly with when we take writers and photographers down you know no one else is looking at these in the way that that we are because no one else is really thinking about it as a river yet they're also thinking about as a reservoir so we go out with photographers who are doing photo matches of uh, elliot porter or uh other historical photographs, and they are able to get them now. You know, they're able to get within six feet of where some of these people stood um, in places that were once under 170 feet of water. So to see that excitement and to see that kind of passion about the land and the changes happening, uh, it's been really inspiring for me over the years and I think it really helps us continue to build the momentum that we've seen. Yeah, it seems like um, a
2: really interesting experience, Jack, when you're discover- um, describing, was it Gregory Natural Bridge that you were saying re-emerged? And I guess I was wondering if you could speak to your own experience and going on these trips and what it's been like for you to watch, uh, to watch the, the canyon evolve even over the last, you know, five years or so.
3: Yeah, definitely. So Gregory is definitely the one that has emerged last year that created a lot of press and attention. But for me, the touchstone place and the one that I've seen the most change in since my time going down to Glen Canyon, um, is cathedral in the desert. Cathedral in the desert is, and you know, was considered by the early river runners kind of the, the centerpiece formation down there. It was just it was this huge chamber, beautiful, um, high arching wall, super big amphitheater, like, I don't know, hundred feet tall overhanging cliffs. And right in the middle of it, there's this really ethereal, like waterfall that runs from what I've seen year round. And it's just a really striking place to be, a really reverent um, place. And when I first started going in 2019, um, we so we watched the reservoir levels. We have a couple uh, longtime members and advisory committee folks that really watch the levels for the sake of the cathedral. They know when the cathedral feature is going to come out of the reservoir, or when the what we used to call the new floor would come out. So we had these kind of elevation markers, be like, oh, at you know 35, 55, or 30. 565, we would know to go and see this part of the feature. So in 2019, we had one of these elevation um, signals coming up in the, in the spring and rented a motorboat and zoomed down to the Escalante Arm, where, where a cathedral in the desert um, is in its own little side canyon there. And at that point, you basically motored right up to this beach um, that we called the new floor and poked, poked your boat nose right onto that, hopped out, and you know, 50 feet away or so was the waterfall. And the waterfall was probably about 30% of its uh, historical size because it's filled in with both the lake as well as this big dune of sediment that created the new floor. And it's still beautiful. I mean, the chamber is still there. The kind of high walls and arching kind of cave-like feel of the place. But the waterfall itself, you know, is only maybe like 20 feet tall or something. So it was cool to see, um, but very much so a changed spot. Um, fast forward to, uh, let me think. I think it would have been the fall of 2021. So I've probably been down the reservoir now. I don't know five times or something um, in different capacities. These research media trips, um, member groups out there, and gone to the Esquiante several times. It's kind of a, the main zone to go um, look at features and do do work. We've had a in that in that over the course of those three years, we did a bio blitz down there and spent a lot of time in one of the other tributary canyons. So I've gotten to know the place pretty well. Gotten to know. Things change, and you know what kind of doesn't change. Um, But what had not changed to me over those years was cathedral's sort of presence, it had still looked kind of the same as it had for a long time. That being said, in the spring or between basically spring 2020 and now, the reservoir levels have dropped precipitously, and so we knew in the fall of 2021 that cathedral was going to look a lot different, and we had really a historical monsoon cycles all through the basin, like Hanksville all the way down to Esquante had flooded, like huge, two or three huge storms that brought a lot of rain. And whenever that happens, we get flash flood events in the canyons. So we knew that the reservoir had come down as well as these flash flood events. So we're super curious to see how that impacted um, a lot of the canyons, but particularly places like Cathedral, where we know that things you know, ideally will start to look more like they once did. So we parked the boat at this point probably like an eighth of a mile from the reservoir or from the feature. So we parked the boat in this basically like what now looks like, just like a little nondescript beach um, in this Canyon called Clear Creek where cathedral is. And we walked around a corner and before we could see the waterfall, we could hear it, which was the first time I'd ever experienced that. And we came around the corner and these flash flood events had scoured away probably like up to 30 feet of this quote unquote new floor. Lasted it all out downstream so we walked around the corner and what i was presented with was much closer to what the historical river runners ever would have seen and that, that really brought me to um it was pretty emotional it was definitely like brought both my director and i like total silence and just like took in the the reality of how much nature can can feel itself when you give it the chance and it was a, a it was a really cool thing to see and to know that like I think it was like a little validating for both of us. So it's like, understand that we've been championing this place for a long time. And then to know that when you let it leave, you let the water come down and you are able to let nature um, do its thing, that these features that were once considered quote unquote lost aren't, they're still there. And they're kind of just waiting for the moment to be protected. So that was really cool. And we've been back a lot several times since then to that, that chamber and it continues to erode that sediment out and, uh, yeah, there's already maiden hair growing in the chamber. There's there's little cottonwood uh, trees coming up in the in the canyon um, on the way in, and it's a it's a really special special place to me. Wow,
1: that's incredible. So did, did I hear you right that it had cleared out upon your second visit that the um, flash floods had cleared out like thirty feet of sediment? Or what did you say about the amount? Yeah,
3: tall. Like a, I can send you some pictures, but it basically doubled the size of the waterfall. And because people have been going in there to see it, there are people eroding away. It basically cleared out half, like right underneath the chamber. It blasted out like, well, would equate to like half of the dune. And then the other half is like kind of off to the right. And because people are going in there and like checking it out, I think the dune's getting eroded down and washed away more every time it rains down there. So I've been back. So I've actually had gone to cathedral probably like three times between 2019 and 2021. Or more, I can't. I can't really remember, but several times, a few times, and seen it under, like not underwater, but with the lake basically right to the um, waterfall with that "quote unquote" new floor. And then I've been back several times since the uh, flooding event in 2021 as well. So it's been really shocking and, and like, kind of awe striking. Really, more than shocking, awe striking to see the change. And uh, yeah, I, I can send you some side by side pictures so you can get an idea of what it looked like versus what it now looks like. It's, you know, it's hard to wrap your head
1: around, honestly. It kind of speaks to the power of the, rigi- the river in its original form. Um, you, you know, it's uh, it has so much drop from the head of the river to the bottom of the river that, that there's so much power in it. Um, I would wonder if you'd be willing, Jack, to speak to the current state of the situation. You talk about those water levels dropping, and so, what is the current current circumstance of the reservoir and the water levels dropping?
3: Yeah, good question. Um, of course, this gets into the weeds a lot with just kind of the jargon of how we discuss water levels as well as what the Bureau of Reclamation, the agency that controls the water levels in the reservoir, um, are going to do. And it's also a wild card here um, with the snowpack in the Intermountain West, which feeds these reservoirs. You know, all the water in the Colorado River comes from um, our snowpack. So... Depending on how the rest of the winter goes, um, in the spring, um, these numbers could change between basically the spring and the fall. Um, but uh, because so right now, um, Glen Canyon um, or Lake Powell reservoir is sitting at uh, so this is all elevation below sea level. That's how I'm sorry, elevation above sea level. So the way they talk about what the lake level is is just like it's at like it's elevation basically. So the current level of the reservoir is 3,522 above sea level. Um, Full pool is 3,700 feet. And for much of the kind of 2000s, it hovered around 3,600 feet. So when I started going down there, it was just under that. And yeah, pretty much since 2020, it's dropped from 3,600 down to... I'm sorry, since like 2018, it's dropped 3,600 down to about 35, 22. It's been the lowest it's gotten. And where that's where it's sitting right now. And so we'll hit low water in another probably like two months um, before the spring runoff really starts. And then spring runoff is when the reservoir could come back up um, a bit. And they're also going to do some, they've, they've changed how much water they're going to release downstream to Lake Mead. That will kind of keep the reservoir around this tier of 3525, which is where they want it to be for the sake of um, a couple of things, but so primarily hydropower is what they say. But we also, I mean, we and others in the basin know that they need a certain amount of water to be able to meet downstream deliveries. So every day they have to release a certain amount of water to meet their annual obligation to the lower basin. So they're gonna do everything they can to protect the reservoir Lake Powell, to be able to continue to meet those downstream Um, obligations as well as protect hydropower but uh it's really only a matter of time even with this big winter right now so much of the so much of the water now is lost to the system because of the aridity aridity in the climate in the intermountain west that even a big winter like what we're experiencing will definitely not bring the reservoir back up more than you know 10 feet or something we would need several back-to-back above average winters which as you guys probably are aware of climate change is not really um, looking like a possibility. So, yeah, I, I bet the reservoir will stay around 3525, maybe come up to maybe something in the mid 3530s or even 3540 this summer if they're able to, depending on how much they hold back. But um, we're, we, a lot of models are projecting that in the next 18 months, there's a reality that we hit minimum power pool, which is 3490. And that would be a, that would be a big shock to the basin, but not really a shock to us who kind of been ringing the alarm bells for a long time. Um, but there's lots of modeling that should suggest that is a serious future, uh, serious um, potential for the future of the of the reservoir. And then below that, there's another tiers that if you guys are interested in, we can talk about, but 3370 is what we call dead pool. That's when we stop making hydropower um, in the water. I'm sorry, 3490 is when we stop making hydropower. That's minimum power pool. And then... Thirty-three 30, seventy is Deadpool, which is the elevation at which water is basically a net, a uh, net neutral in and out. So you have these other outlet tubes below the below the turbines that create power that are just a, a backup to let water out, and those are not a efficient way to actually deliver water downstream. They can only let a certain amount of water out. So our our big push in the last few years um, has been to. Basically, like showcase that this isn't a reality, like a not realistic way to move water out of the reservoir. So, if we hit that 3370 tier, um, there's a lot of problems that arise, both for the sake of the Bureau of Reclamation um, managing the river, as well as these ecosystems and regions that we've already kind of showcased are able to come back. That's another uh, collaborator that I guess I should mention when you guys asked me earlier about those. We worked with uh, Utah Rivers Council and the Great Basin Water Network this past year to produce a report. Um, about this very issue. So that's a really good one if you guys want to get into the nitty gritty details of um, lake levels and water delivery. There's some really good infographics on there and my director and the teams at those other nonprofits did a really good job of kind of outlining um, where the downfalls of the current plumbing in the, in the dam are and how we, what we think we should be done to more effectively move water downstream. This year, yeah, we'll probably see it hover around where it's been the last year. Um, but I think within the next 18 to 24 months, we're going to continue to see like this precipitous drop that we've experienced in 2020.
2: Yeah, it's pretty, it's staggering to hear you speak to, uh, even with a winter like this, that really the effect is pretty minimal. And then it would take several winters of above, above average um, snowfall to, to bring the, the overall pool back to, a, I guess, a more manageable height. The, the thing that I hear you describing is it kind of seems inevitable that um, the lake level would be approaching Deadpool or at the very least minimum power pool. Is that true? And if so, what would be a rough time frame or a rough guess as to when that might even happen? I would have to pull some
3: charts up here to get you guys the um, exact dates and numbers. There's usually, so the way the Bureau of Our, the Bureau of Reclamation kind of forecasts out this stuff is they have like a best case scenario, uh, a, medium like a middle of the road scenario which is kind of their average and then a worst case scenario and i mean the worst case scenario has it going down to minimum power powerful i think it's like by april 2024 yeah and then um you could you could do like look those up The B the br has all that information readily available um but yeah it's, it's dependent on a bunch of factors but primarily them propping up lake powell with uh upper basin water so using the other reservoirs to um, fill the reservoir back up to, you know, basically keep it going for as long as they can and then curtailing cur- downstream deliveries. So they can do that, you know, as long as the States will let them, um, I guess. But, uh, yeah, if they're just like run, if they were just run kind of, um, the operation does normally, it would drop us to oil power pool like, pretty quickly.
1: Are there, are there, um, efforts being made to, uh, drill lower outlet holes or to try and keep the reservoir and lower
3: and make the dead pool level even lower. Totally. Yeah, that's kind of our biggest mission is in terms of the uh the goal of how we would rather than we see them operate the reservoir so instead of just like blowing the dam up, which is, you know, what the Ed Abbey kind of type folks would say, um, which of course is a great idea but uh, not really realistic. We have we have, you know, a um, we call it the napkin, but it's basically a plan that the uh, old uh, Bureau of Reclamation um, director Lloyd Dominey, helped us create back in the '90s. So it's essentially drilling new bypass tunnels around the dam on either side of it, and we would do that at river level. So you still have the dam there, kind of standing as an effigy to you know modern modern man's hubris, I would say, but also as a backup just in case we have some giant flooding flooding year. And we don't want to like over inundate Mead but you would have two tunnels that go around the dam. We'd have to figure out ways to move sediment through those as well as, you know, I'm sure the first few years of the new era of Glen Canyon, it would be some sort of managed water delivery as well. But yeah, that's like kind of our biggest idea for how to avoid Deadpool and continue to let water go downstream as well as restore Glen Canyon. Yeah. Drilling new bypass tunnels around the dam. And we've, you know, we've talked to some, some, tunnel, bu- some <laughs> tunnel builders about like price of that and, um, just kind of the feasibility of it, and they, they, you know, they did it back in the day. So you can, you don't know, think you could use the old bypass panels, but we could make new ones. And so
1: you uh, jokely referenced one option, then you talk about this other option. And if, so if I kind of summarize it, um, there's three options: you keep the dam and try and keep managing the way we are, um, kind of ignorant to the future, seemingly being that it's not going to be sustainable. Two would be to get rid of the dam altogether. That doesn't seem very feasible. Three is to drill uh, lower outlet tunnels or to allow a bypass in some way at a lower level to accommodate the river operating closer to what it was. Are there any other options being explored currently? Not
3: really. And I would say like as far as mainstream people go, that first option is what a lot of the Basin states and the Bureau of Reclamation want to have happen. But nature is forcing us to make other plants. So, I mean, those are the three that make to me like are in present. But in terms of like actual water use, I think there's a lot of stuff happening that don't have anything to do with the dam. It's more about like cutting back um, consumptive habits downstream in the lower basin states. So taking water, taking water away from, you know, ag and, and other municipalities that are using um, that don't necessarily need it. So crops being furloughed, that kind of thing. So I think conservation is what they're hoping people will do. And in doing so, be able to keep more water in the reservoirs. Um, that's definitely
1: like part of the dialogue as well. Uh, California is one of the lower basin recipients. And uh, don't they take precedent? They get their percentage of water no matter what. So it's kind of like, isn't isn't the water compact written in a way that um, they get their water and, and then whatever's left for the upper basin states is left?
3: Um, sort of, I mean, well, not really. Every basin gets an allocation. So all states have a percentage of the river that they're able to use. They all have a, you know, a cut, basically. And
1: so if the, um, the total amount of water available doesn't meet all of those demands, how does that work amongst states? I
3: mean, they over allocated the river from the beginning. They knew they were working with a hundred years of wet period and they, they knew that there wasn't going to be enough water in the future to meet some of these obligations uh yeah i mean lawsuits like you'll have different states suing each other um for their water rights i would say that mostly um they're all trying to like avoid that for now especially the bureau of reclamation they want you know people to come to the table and work actively together versus like going to litigation but yeah it's we're kind of in like an unknown era uh there are you know state state uh working groups that are having these conversations about who's going to take what cuts. There's also, you know, basin wide work being done. So both upper and lower basin have different big picture conservation projects of basically like taking, um, taking cuts or uh, holding water in different reservoirs to make sure they kind of like plan for the future. And those, we don't think that those are going far enough. Like they're definitely just like same as, you know, kind of the, well, same as holding water back in the reservoir, it's sort of band-aid fixes. It's not like realistic for the long long view, but you know, maybe we get buy them another year or something of having to do mandatory cutbacks on a large scale. A lot of the California too, I and mean, especially Los Angeles, you know, they've been able to like utilize less Colorado River water and use more groundwater and local sources, um, while like you know recycle like uh, reusing water as well. Um, but you know, ag is the big elephant in the room. Agriculture uses about seventy percent of the Colorado River, so until we really address that and the fact that we're growing, you know, these crops in the desert that don't really have any business being there. I think we're going to continue to have these, these battles, um, but it's kind of a, it's a hard conversation to have, you know, talk about cutting ag. Yeah,
2: for sure. Do you, you know, Jack, I was wondering, do you know what roughly, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever it was when they were making projections of how many acre feet of uh, water crossed through the dam do you know roughly what that difference was between their projection and how many acre feet of water actually crossed through the dam?
3: Well, I think, I mean, they think it's 11 million. Like, they planned for 11 million acre feet. It's more realistically, like, 7 million. Wow, so they're
2: already running, like, a 4 million acre foot deficit, in a sense?
3: Well, I mean, you're talking about upper base and lower base and compact. They didn't build the Glen Canyon Dam until the 50s and finish in the 60s, so they, they signed a contract in the 20s. So I kind of, I mean, you could know, look back at records, and it changes every year, you know. from like, how much, like in the like in '83 and 2011, they're able to like let more water out, and it's this 10 year long rolling like allotment. So they let a them certain amount them every year to meet this amount they need. They like are obligated to, so they can kind of they can kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. One year can make more, of like ideally, when it's a wetter year. Gotcha.
2: Um, And so it seems like in a lot of ways, there's like an uncertain future with um, maybe the relationships between states and how they interact with the river and understand who gets what sort of thing. I guess I was wondering from GCI's standpoint, the implications of if you were to retrofit the dam to operate at lower lake levels, what would be the implications above the dam? And I wonder the implications below the dam, like a couple of things that come to mind are power generation and um, just like sediment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are two big questions we get all the time, you know, power generation equates for small percentage of people's water, or electric, electric bills in the Western grid, you know, it's like 10 cents per month per water user, actual power user, um, on WAPA. And, uh, we think that there's renewable sources that we could subsidize that with. We've, we've done like, you know, like I said earlier, some research commissioned research to look at what the reality of taking hydro offline, offline is, and as the water comes down, um, getting closer to that our pool, um, generation elevation, um, that quality of the energy is, is less. So yeah, that's a consideration one that people often get caught up on, but you know, you got to remember the primary reason we have Lake Powell and Glen Canyon dam is so the upper basin can simply hold on to its water allotment and is not let more than a single drop downstream than it's legally obligated to do. So While people get caught up on on hydro and houseboating, it's really, those are just byproducts of this water storage facility. Gotcha. The sediment piece is a great question. Um, You know, the short answer is that a lot of the sediment is trapped upstream um, where these big bays live. So, like right now, the river begins or ends, I guess you could say, at uh, a place called the Horn, which is I think about 50 miles upstream from Bullfrog Marina. It's where the delta is. It's just kind of this really strange spot. And below that, there's Good Hope Bay, which is this huge bay on the reservoir. It's like one of the biggest bays there. And our USGS folks think that that should be the the stop point. We shouldn't let the reservoir fluctuate anymore past that. So we can use Good Hope Bay as this giant sediment catch to strand these banks of sediment there. A lot of the sediment exists at the deltas. So up at the top, of the canyon where the Colorado meets and then down at the San Juan primarily. So if we can trap the sediment in some of these um, delta areas, like in the bays, in those rivers, then we don't have as much getting force downstream. That being said, of course there is sediment that's gonna just flow down with the river as as the, when the river goes around the dam again. Um, and those, that sediment, you know, belongs downstream in the Great Canyon. We have 200 miles of, of river and canyon below Glen Canyon Dam where that sediment belongs there's definitely uh the problem like problematic reality of lake mead filling with sediment just much so like powell has um and then you know there's maybe like some cert- uh, innovative strategies for harnessing and reusing some sediment versus just having it run down to Mead. but um for the time being yeah those are questions that i think we we have had a lot of people ask about and i think we've had a lot of time to think about and, and we know that much like you know, remanaging managing because it's not going to come from Blaine Canyon Institute to pay for the bypass tunnels or to pay for sediment catch or sediment, you know, reappropriation. These are questions that we want to basically get on the table and then have the big government agencies like take a hard look at. I
2: was just going to say, it seems that the, <laughs> I guess the project of uh, working with the sediment that's flowed into the reservoir, it just, it just seems like that would be such a massive thing to deal with. Is that a fair
3: statement or a fair assessment on my end? So, depending on where in the reservoir you are, yes, the sediment is, is at these Delta zones. So as the Delta moves, the sediment moves with it. But if we were to stop the reservoir from, from moving the way it is, like, and we were able to like, let it go back to a river versus this kind of like slow roll of lowering, then we could strand the sediment. But in the main canyons, like where, you know, where, where we haven't seen the river start to return yet, where there's still like a deep, like hundred to 150 feet of reservoir, those areas, don't have the sediment that you have upstream, like in Cataract, because we haven't had this fluctuation. We just have, you know, a reservoir there basically still. So the sediment hasn't been able to get there yet. So right now the sediment's stranded like a hundred miles above the dam. Or not stranded, it's, it's still move. it's moving right now as the delta moves. But if we were to like flush the thing really fast versus this kind of slow roll that we're seeing now, the, the geologists think we could lead the sediment upstream. There'll be other places, like in, in the Escalante, And the dirty devil and in the san juan and other tributaries that will have their own sediment deltas but it's the same conversation it's like where can we leave that sediment versus like kind of having having it slowly like a glacier move down and and there
2: it sounds to me like there are pretty big effects if if there's a do nothing approach with the sediment that the reservoir would fill is that
3: true i mean over yeah like we're talking hundreds of years yeah Huh.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a, again, for me, that's a pretty staggering thought. But even um, it, less than hundreds of years down the road, there would still be effects of not doing anything with the sediment.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a bummer to me to see these amazing canyons get filled in with silt, <laughs> you know. Like, I know it can change. I know that the side canyons can flash and change. And even in, in cataracts, we see that, like, on the main stem. But there isn't a gradient in Glen Canyon proper that you have in cataract or in the side caves. So it would take substantial events to clear sediment out of like the area basically from uh escalante down to the dam is like what they call the heart of the of the canyon which is still just under the reservoir so we were able to stop the delta before getting to bullfrog so if the if the reservoir goes to deadpool the delta is at bullfrog And then bullfrog down is beautiful too like everywhere i mean everywhere from basically where the where the good hope bay delta is where the good hope bay zone is down to the can down to the dam is like really cool, like super towering sandstone walls, like really beautiful, like, you know, like national park quality canyon. Um, And so if we could strand it there, you know, we have these areas like around Bullfrog and all the way down to the dam that would just be like kind of more, I mean, there'd be some sediment in there and it would be a changed environment, maybe some bathtub ring and that kind of stuff. But if we're able to leave the dam, leave the sediment upstream, we could have, I think, a lot of canyon back. So it leads to the question too,
1: what about below the dam? So how would the river change? Um, even the slow release of sediment, um, what would the river look like downstream? How,
3: how, how would it be affected? So since the dam was finished, you know, we've had a, basically a non-natural river in the Grand Canyon, you know, they know exactly what the flows are going to be every day. And we would go back to a more natural seasonal um, cycle. So you'd have sometimes when it's like crazy and like high water and there are times when it's low water and you're rock dodging. Uh, yeah. Depending on the time of year and, and runoff you know we have we'd have to we'd have to once again live within the boundaries of the, the natural cycles which you know i think would probably be a bummer for some people down there but also provide a lot of i think inspiration to others i think that's an exciting thing to think about of course there is a lot of work being done on native fish and um, bug flows and sediment you know beach building happening down there like like uh through dam releases um, and this is a question for sedimentologists or, or the folks working on science down in the Grand Canyon. But, you know, I would believe that if we were able to let sediment move downstream through the dam, around the dam, then we would have better beaches. We'd have kind of more natural ecosystem habitat for um, plants and animals down there. And that would be, I think, a beautiful thing. It would take some time to get used to it, like everything else. But I think we would we would be better off for sure in the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we, have a, we had a real-life experience um, that correlates some, somewhat with what you're talking about. There's fish that have been dying. Some speculate it's because of water temperature. There's invasive species. So there's different reasons that there's been fish dying. But just below the dam, you know, that section of river can be floated. Historically, the water temperature, what is it? It's like 48? It's yeah, like mid-40s, mid, 40s. Mid 40s, upper 40s. And just in this last cold year, as a mug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. cold as a mug and just in this last year, that water temperature is like 70. So like when you go float the river now, it's like kind of bathtub when
2: it was like previously, like take your breath away. Yeah, totally. Yeah. i was staggering to see. How we, we did a float in the fall and just, there was like all kinds of dead fish. There was a team of scientists up there studying the fish and yeah, it was just a very, I don't know, kind of a
3: stark sight to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Warm water. I mean, the bass don't like warm water. Yeah. <laughs> the trout don't like warm water. They're cold water fish, but they're, you know, non-native. Yeah, right. So, yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of folks that were in the Grand Lake this year and they're like, it was insane how warm the water was. And yeah, I mean, that's just that's what we're going to get more of as the reservoir continues to drop. Totally, totally.
1: Well, Jack, how did you how did you come to get involved with all this? It sounds like uh, you have a lot of outdoor adventures for sure. So, how did you come to get connected with Glen Canyon Institute and do this work?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I you know I grew up back east skiing my whole life, and I moved to Utah to ski and again the bigger mountains. And pretty early on in my college and skiing career out here, I learned about some pretty big public lands issues um, related to resort development here in the mountain range that I, I recreate in. And I sort of started to realize that I could use my, um, outdoor activities and my ability to do some writing and and storytelling to help kind of work on these environmental sites. And so I did that through college and thereafter kind of just on my own. And then I went to grad school for it in 2015 and, uh, yeah, sort of just use that as a, uh, A trampoline that continued to work on my my different skills and uh what i was excited about academically so writing and history literature and i got done with my program i used the program to do work around um, backcountry skiing um preservation versus industrialization of mountain ranges here and across the west and uh yeah so i was interested in in mostly public lands, but you know, snowpack is related to runoff into water and climate change, of course. So I started to start to see through lines from the work I was doing in the mountains to the desert. And there was a job opening here as I finished grad school. So I had maybe six months between grad school and applying for the job here. And, uh, that was 2016. I, uh, applied and got the job as a manager, um, here at DC at Glen Canyon Institute. And it's been cool to like, still like as these, as climate change has had these impacts on the reservoir, it's been cool to continue to use my um, background working in public lands, working um, on climate change and being a backcountry skier to find these kind of through lines from these really complex issues and how they're all interconnected and interrelated. So using backcountry skiing as a medium to explore climate change, understanding, you know, changing snowpacks and changing avalanche conditions and then how that impacts the river has been really a super cool and dynamic way to engage with Glen Canyon Institute particularly, as well as just understanding the reality of what this landscape, both the mountains, the rivers, and our communities and cultures that rely on them will look like in the future. So that's been kind of my trajectory for the last, yeah, 10 years or so from, from or 10 or 12 years from college through grad school, through working here um, full-time and continuing to do all of my Big adventures around the West and the world, going on trips and exploring new mountain ranges and new snowpacks. Um, and, you know, kind of always thinking about how these places are interconnected and, you know, why it's important to have places that we can go and recreate and experience. And also how it's important that there are places that, you know, we sort of leave alone and let nature be the, nature is always kind of the driving force of any of these landscapes. And so when you said put into the reservoir or into the avalanche terrain, you're always going in with that. That uh, hum, that humble empathy that you need to have, knowing that you're not really in charge. That nature is calling the shots, and you got to live within the natural boundaries of what that allows for. That that's either you know choosing a river you're going to float and knowing what the water levels are going to be, choosing terrain you want to ski a certain day, as well as as you know humans how we move into the 21st century and what our you know future looks like and how we use and consume and ultimately ideally preserve resources that we have here in the West and abroad. Yeah. In that, what, what is most rewarding for you?
2: Hmm. That's
3: a good question. I think like knowing, so like being able to get out in the country and go on adventures, both for myself as well as that are giving back to the places is really rewarding. Just like being able to experience landscapes is amazing, you know, for just like kind of selfish reason. It's just like really cool and like fun. And, seeing how your body reacts in extreme environments. But I think on a bigger, like deeper scale, both like building community, both with the kind of ecological systems that we deal with, as well as people that I get to work with um, in both of those capacities, mountains and rivers, has um, been really rewarding. Just like seeing how much passion there is from people that uh, are excited to, you know, ask difficult questions and find innovative solutions to those answers. And knowing that like, yeah, this is kind of a, of a scary time for all those things for snowpacks, for runoff for these reservoirs for human reliance on the river um it's a scary moment but it also comes with a lot of opportunity and the community that we built here at uci and the community that i have working on um climate related snowpack issues um they're really inspired by the future potential for you know innovative strategies to get through this you know kind of moment of reckoning um so yeah i think like for me, like knowing there's more people out there that want to work on this and want to not just work on it, but also want to go be curious about the outdoors and go on adventures and and use that those experiences to further understanding of how we can be better at living and, and working out here.
1: Well, Jack, we appreciate you taking time uh, to respond to our questions and tell us more about Glen Canyon and the river, the Colorado River. Um, we often on this podcast ask, uh, most often we're interviewing people that, that reside uh, in and around Flagstaff and we ask how they would define the town. Um, you're based out of Salt Lake, but you had mentioned prior to us starting recording that you'd been to Flagstaff and been in the area generally. Um, so I'm wondering, based on the experiences you've had in Flagstaff or in northern mm-hmm. Arizona, yeah, how would you summarize or describe
3: that area? Hmm. Um, well, I've, I've only been there for a couple nights and I've been able to present at, uh, a, a gear store there and I've gone to a, uh, gave a talk at the, um, Klein library. So I've been able to get out in the space a little bit, had some really good meals on kind of your guys' main street there. Um, gone out to some breweries, which was fun. But I think one of the coolest experiences I had when I was there was going up after the night, the day after I gave a presentation, um, at the gear store and I think it's was Flag- mountain sports, Flagstaff mm-hmm. mountain sports. I hiked up, I, I drove my rental car over to, um, uh, Snow Bowl and I hiked up Humphrey's and met a lot of really nice people along the way. We had a lot of really good conversations and I kind of like got to the kind of summit Ridge there where it sort of gets really Alpine. Those are kind of cool. Like, lichen growing on all the rocks and you get to the top and you can see navajo mountain out to the kind of northeast and you can see the rim of the grand canyon out to the west and you kind of look back down to town and it's just this really cool kind of uh trifecta of all these different landscapes and and the region itself it sort of really felt like you know kind of south central heartland of that whole part of the plateau so that was really cool to get up high and to you know, have both the experience of meeting people in town, but then also to see some of your wild space there and to see how kind of connected all the, the people in the land was. That was pretty special. And uh, I'm excited to come back and learn more, spend more time in town, talk to more folks about the river. And uh, I mean, that's the Grand Canyon community headquarters right there. I know it's like ingrained in the culture. So it's always fun to visit and talk to people about their, their work building dories or taking photographs or, you know, getting people out in the, in the country. Um, yeah always a great time coming to Flagstaff yeah well
2: once again Jack thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today whenever you uh, show back up we'll have to uh, treat you to a cup of coffee or a uh, whatever Dan's favorite donut is at that time (laughs) love it that concludes our interview with Jack Staus from Glen Canyon Institute. Thank you so much for tuning in and huge thanks to Jack for his willingness to go hashtag beyond flag with Dan and Cody over the telephono. If you'd like to learn more about Jack and the important work being done at Glen Canyon Institute, they can be found at www.glencanyon.org or on the IG at Glen Canyon underscore Institute. If you'd like to check out other episodes of Hashtag Beyond Flag or any other episodes from our other shows, Quick and Nerdy, or Crossing the Chasm, hosted by Brian Peterson, drop by www.beyondflag.com, flag spelled F-L-G, or you can always find us on the Instagram at beyond underscore flag. In the meantime, loveys.